On short notice, I considered what I might bring to you, and I think you're realizing that the Nehemiah text and sermon title there were Pastor Whitmer's before he called me to come. I decided to direct you to something that's very familiar to me. A passage contained in our text today is what I regard as my life passage. So I'm on familiar ground, and maybe you are too, if I ask you to turn to Psalm 73. Not 23, but 73. Many have favorite psalms, and of course 23 is a great favorite. I do not diminish its importance at all when I say mine is 73. A psalm that has spoken to me many ways and many times in my life and ministry. It's a little bit lengthy, but I'm going to read the whole thing. And I really am preaching from the whole thing with concentration on the verses 25 and 26 that I'll land on as I conclude this morning. Listen to this psalm written by a man named Asaph, not David. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And by the way, if this sermon has a title, that's it. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. While all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, and all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And I think you almost have to pause and take a deep breath after that sentence, because the thought turns now. But if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I sought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Certainly at times in your life, you've heard the recitation from Scripture, from the Old Testament of what we call the Ten Commandments. And I wonder if you, like me, sometimes have heard the Ten Commandments spelled out from Scripture. Exodus 20 would be one place you find the listing of them. And you thought to yourself, well, there's some really bad sins in there. Murder, adultery, really serious issues. But maybe you've come to the end of the passage that tells the commandments, like Exodus 20, and you came to number 10, which reads this way, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, nor her, his manservant or maidservant, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And, and you thought to yourself, well, okay, you know, I can see where coveting is wrong, envying what someone else possesses is wrong. But, you know, that's kind of a minor commandment, right? Not as bad as murder, not as bad as adultery. Well, here's a man of God in Psalm 73 who was caught up in envy or covetousness toward godless people, wealthy, oppressive, unjust people who were treating God's people wrongly with violence, with evil intent, and he is envying these people. And we see in this psalm and in the commandment that envy is really a corrosive attitude of the heart that plagues us with distorted vision of what is valuable, what is true, and what is right. And here's a man of God whose feet were slipping away from the faith by his own confession because he envied the unjust and unbelieving people. Now this author, if you don't recognize the name of Asaph, is the second most fluent psalmist of our biblical psalms. David, of course, wrote the largest number, many of them, and there are a few others. There's even a psalm by Moses in, in the collection. But uh, Asaph, who was a priest and a choir master in the temple of God built by Solomon after David's time, was actually the second most prolific psalmist. He wrote either 11 or 12. There's one we're not quite sure about whether he is the author or not. His name isn't given on it. But... Uh, Here's a man who was a poet, a singer, a director of music, a theologian, a priest, a man in the center of the things God was doing in Israel long ago. And he starts out this psalm in a great tumult of doubt and difficulty. As I said, if I had given Tim soon enough a title for this sermon to get into your bulletin, the title would have been, My Feet almost slipped. That's what he said. I didn't know where to stand any longer, and I was on a slippery slope in terms of what I believed. Well, first, let's look at that, the problem that's here, a believer's faith on a slippery slope. Well, first, the man does make a statement, the very first verse there, 
kind of a creed, very short statement of faith. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, I know this. I know this in my head. I've learned it from youth that God is good to his people, people who follow him and seek after him. But then he says, but, uh uh-oh, something's wrong with this general creed that he has stated. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and slipped. Well, this man had a general theory that many people hold, religious people certainly hold it, that God is good, God is blessing towards those who, who know him and seek after him and obey his commandments and seek his will and so on. But yet he's saying, well, I believe that and I know that's true, but it apparently isn't true in every situation without exception. And in fact, the exceptions were shouting at this man. And he was saying it was easy for me to believe that that isn't true. Because he saw wicked people prospering, piling up fortunes on the backs of unjust treatment of common everyday folks. He saw celebrities. My goodness, we see them. I pursued a little side trail website one day that talked about, I don't know why I'm interested in something like this. I wasn't really interested, but just something to do. It was about celebrity homes and the names of well-known movie stars and the homes they live in, anywhere from three to $500 million. Do you need a $500 million home? I can tell you where there are some. Follow out this website. And I looked at this just in bafflement. Why anybody would think they need all the things that these folks... I mean, an indoor swimming pool was almost a requirement. Six-car garage, requirement. Bentley in the driveway, requirement. And those are the kind of people this man was disturbed about. He saw godly people trying to make their common way and earn a living and do what was right, and they were being oppressed by people who had so much in material things and not just prosperity, but success and celebrity and fame. And uh, he said, it just upset me. I almost lost my faith in God altogether as I began to envy these people. Let me suggest to you this morning that one reason I selected this text to come to you is we would perhaps have a similar problem to this man, but it's not necessarily just about people's fame or wealth. It might be about their hold on power or politics as we look about in our land today. And I would assume I'm speaking to folks of conservative viewpoints, conservative politics, not necessarily making an assumption about your being in one particular party or another. But I would think in addressing this congregation, although I don't know you personally very well, that you are people who believe in a duly elected democratic republic that we live in, that you're proud to live in it, proud to look at our flag and have some pride in it and the history of development and all the things that make our nation what it is. And yet now you're looking around and saying, oh my, I'm just dismayed at who's in charge here or is anybody in charge? What's going on in our country? And maybe we could say my feet had almost slipped when we behold the kinds of things we've been beholding in the last recent days. 
Well, Asaph, our choir director, if we're members of his choir, is leading us in singing a lament here, and it's a lament of self-pity. It's a dirge. Why, O oh God, have you allowed your church and your godly people to be subjected to the rule of this disorderly chaos and things that are going on in our nation today? I would see the attitude that Asaph has in the beginning of this psalm to apply, really, to where we are right now. But secondly, having seen the problem, I want you to hear this truth about Asaph's thinking in Psalm 73. And a second point I make is to say that envy of the ungodly is actually based on a mirage. It's a phantom. It's not substantial. It's not true. But he really does paint a a wonderful case here in his language. The King James Version of this says, These people he's worried about wear their pride as a necklace. Verse 7, their eyes bulge with fatness. Verse 9, their tongues take possession of the earth. This man knew language and how to use descriptive language, didn't he? And some of these slick worldlings who so bothered Asaph even looked to be immune from disease. They didn't need to line up for a COVID vaccine because they probably wouldn't get it while the common people suffered and died from it. It seemed to him that great health was theirs all the time. But that's a fiction, isn't it? I don't know that COVID today has a a financial test for who it afflicts. And if you were to go to a cancer clinic, let's say, where you were finishing up cancer therapy, my younger sister is in the midst of six weeks of five days a week cancer treatment, chemotherapy treatment. And I imagine that as she goes to that clinic every day and has to take that chemo medicine, there are people there in the waiting area who are people of great wealth and privilege and high education and high position and everything else, along with the truck driver or the, the single mom on welfare or whatever. Uh, this kind of thing does not differentiate between economic classes. It's really a mirage that this man is saying uh, these people don't have the troubles or the illnesses or, or even the death that the rest of us have. My wife and I had an opportunity many years ago, early in our marriage, we've been married 52 years now soon, but we were in the second year of our marriage when I was beginning seminary in 1970, and we were in Massachusetts. And if you know Massachusetts at all, you know the area called the North Shore. It's a good distance out of Boston, up in the north, along the coast where Beverly and Gloucester and such areas are, Newburyport. And uh, the area where we were was particularly an area of great wealth. Uh, I remember learning about the golf course that was there. It had a strange name. It was called the Myopia Hunt Club. It was not only a golf course, but it was a place for horse shows and polo. Saw polo for the first time in my life. And uh, we lived in a wonderful estate as caretakers, resident caretakers helping out on the place. It was a beautiful place, a beautiful brick house on a lake with 15 acres of property, uh, swimming pool, five bedrooms, I don't even know. I'd have to stop and count how many baths. And uh, just a wonderful old house. And this was a place that was old money. 
I don't think before that in my life I knew the difference between old money and new money. Old money means that the lady of the house had a maiden name, Lawrence, and there's a city named Lawrence that was her family uh, north of that area. Old money means you went to Harvard. Old money means you know all the right people and you belong to the right clubs. You drive a Chevrolet because it's not stylish to show off with an expensive car. That I found to be very interesting. But old money means, too, as we met the friends of this lady and her husband coming and going from their home at different times for bridge or whatever, uh, that you maybe are on your third divorce. Uh, Maybe your kids don't speak to you anymore. Uh, Maybe you're about as unhappy as anybody could possibly be. We learned that old money didn't give you happiness or, you know, contentment or a wonderful life by any means at all. So the envy we feel towards the ungodly really is based on a mirage, but Asaph had to work through that. But we do find in this psalm that thirdly, his faith got refocused in a specific way in the act of worship. His negative-spirited complaint came to a head, if you'll look at the text, in verse 13 and 14. He started to talk to himself, preach to himself. And he said, All in vain I've kept my heart clean. All day long I've been stricken and rebuked by this inequality. All day long I've been plagued by these thoughts. But even as he was saying this, he started to turn. He started to think what his own voice sounded like and what he was saying And his recovery, I think, began in verse 15, where I read this. If I said I will go on speaking this way, I would have betrayed your children. In other words, I don't sound like a man of God anymore all of a sudden. And I'm I'm being a traitor to your people to talk this way. And it was as he went to worship. Now, whether this was the worship of the temple, we can't be sure, because Solomon built the temple, and Solomon was a contemporary of Asaph, so probably Asaph saw the the great temple of Solomon being built, but before it was built anyway, Israel still did worship together in a temporary sanctuary. And he says now, it was when I went into your sanctuary that I perceived their end, the end, the, the death and future of these people that I'm so envious of and troubled about, I I suddenly realized, wait a minute, they're going to die. And when they die, they're going to be worse off than I am. And it was in the context of worship that he had a wake-up call here and saw that these were the people who were really on the slippery slope, verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places and make them fall to ruin, and they are swept away by terrors and like a dream from which one awakes. He realized this in worship. Do you understand the value of Christian worship to the people of God? Sure, it's great that we have friendships with one another and we pray together or we have small groups or studies together or we just enjoy the friendship of other Christians because they have, we know they have our same values and so on. But there's something about worship. There's something about singing the praises of God, hearing the word of God, and just 
remembering and being reminded and, and preaching to ourselves as we hear the word of God that it is in the Lord and in his people and in his revelation to us that our minds are kept on a proper track of thinking. Not just feeling, but thinking. And when Psalm 73 tells us that the, the godly man almost, this was his word, almost lost his hold on faith, you realize how dangerous materialism can be. You know, we might think, think of something like a, that he didn't have to face. Buying cars. I've been aware of my whole life. I started out as a young married man in a Volkswagen Beetle. Those were the good old days. You buy it for brand new for $2,000. My dad at the same time in the early 70s bought a Dodge Polara, great big Dodge sedan with a V8 engine. He did like powerful cars. And he spent $4,800 for that car in the early 70s. I said, Dad, you spent $4,800 on a car? I couldn't believe it. I recently was trying to help my son and daughter-in-law get a, a car for their teenagers to drive around, and we couldn't find anything for $4,800, even a junker. $4,800, I thought that was extraordinary. Today, you know what we would spend, twenty, thirty, forty, even $50,000 for various new cars. Well, his faith got refocused in the act of worship, but it didn't happen for everybody. We know that Paul wrote about somebody caught in a similar dilemma who saw the good things, the trinkets of the world. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4 about his friend Demas, and he said, Demas has deserted me. Why? Because he loved this present world. He loved materialism and what it could provide. It's the mind that is filled by the Holy Spirit of God through a new birth of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is able to think correctly and resist the stranglehold of materialistic envy. We need to use our Holy Spirit-induced and guided minds to think God's thoughts. Paul again wrote in 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. And if you really think about it, would you want to change places with a godless individual who knows nothing of Jesus Christ, nothing of a new birth of faith, nothing of eternal heaven for those who trust in God's grace, change places with that lost soul just because he controls a vast fortune right now and maybe has another hold on it for about 20 years and then it'll be gone. It's a pitiful thing if any heir of heaven envies hell-bound souls who are without God and without hope in this world. David wrote about it, Psalm 37, just switch the numbers around, we're looking at 73. David wrote Psalm 37, and he said this, I saw a wicked, ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil. But he soon passed away and was no more. And although I looked for him, he could not be found. Thank God for eyes to keep our values in proportion and in balance as we look at all the end things we could envy in this world. There's nothing that the godless person has that we need. And in fact, many things 
in the way that he possesses them would utterly destroy us if we did have them. There's a saying from Martin Luther that I've repeated, I suppose, numerous times to my people at Westminster when I ministered there. Martin Luther said he, he described various kinds of temptations and, and wrong thinking as a crow. And he said, you can have crows flying around your head, and that's going to be inevitable that crows will be all around you and flock around you and croak and maybe even sit on your shoulder. But he said, you're not going to stop them from flying around. But he said, Martin Luther said, don't ever allow them to build a nest in your hair. And that's what we do when we let envy and materialism take hold of us and follow these things. So we come, fourthly, to the wonderful statement of this psalm that I want to leave you with. We look first at Psalm 73, 21 here. And he, when he says, I, when I talked to you this way, Lord, when I was envious, when I was covetous of these things, I was l- brutish. I acted like a brute beast. I was ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I was like a donkey braying at the moon or something. How foolish I was, he's saying. And so he begins now to unfold faith's new foothold standing on the rock of ages here. Verse 22, under the conviction of the Spirit, Asaph now says to the Lord and to any who would hear him, Lord, when I envied the godless man, I was like a brute beast. I must have sounded like a beast acting towards you. In other words, forgive me, Lord. And then he says a wonderful word. I don't know if you mark your Bible or not, but you might mark verse 23, the first word, nevertheless. One word sounds like three words made into one. Nevertheless, often an important word in Scripture because it means turn things around. All of a sudden, he comes to a place where everything turns. In spite of all that that I've said, in spite of all that folly that I spoke, nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand, guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me to glory. That's the rest of his creed, you see. He started out with the creed in verse 1, Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But now, instead of what we do for God, he's talking about what God does for him. You hold my hand. You guide me. You will take me to glory. And now the man's standing fully upright. Now he's speaking that which is true. Nevertheless, once I was blind, he's saying, but now I see things correctly and I can speak of things correctly with my mind and my spirit in balance. And he has a true estimate of time and eternity. I saw someone had a sermon on this passage that they based on three G words that are here. I'm guided by your counsel, and I'm sorry, wait a minute. I'm grasped by your grace, guided by your counsel, and I will soon be glorified in your presence. What a wonderful summary that is, as he now stands on the rock of God's truth and knows that he's possessed by God himself. This isn't something he has accomplished. It's something he has certain just surrendered to and said, Lord, this is what you do for those who put trust in you. Now, you might say to me, Pastor, you said this psalm is your life passage, but isn't it a little strange for you to have a life passage that doesn't include the name of Jesus Christ? Well, of course, Asaph lived long, long before Jesus came on the scene. 
And he, along with anyone of his time, David or anybody else, lived in anticipation of the Savior coming who would fulfill this goodness of God, this mercy of God that allows people to see what it truly is and how to stand in the possession of God's mercy and grace. The full gospel certainly awaited the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. That's the capstone of it all. Time fails me today to tell you the detailed story of my life early in my ministry when this psalm, I would say, became my life passage. But it just seemed, I can only summarize, to be a time when I was kind of like Asaph. I was looking around the world. I was looking at what classmates of mine from high school and college were doing. Some of them were already uh, launched on prosperous careers. I had thought for a long time I would be a doctor. So by that time in my life, I had finished seminary and I would have finished medical school. And I saw friends, you know, launched in successful things where they would surely make lots of money and live in a much better neighborhood than I could and everything else. And I was holding a pity party, quite frankly. Poor me. Poor me. I'm just a poor minister. I'll never have what these friends have. They're not necessarily smarter than me or whatever, but their lives have gone a different path. And I was feeling sorry for myself and struggling with a young family and so on. Did I go in the right path? Is it worth it? Well, maybe you can see how this story of Asaph fit me at that time in my life. And God took hold of this psalm and showed me especially in verses 25 and 26, that here was the great triumphant shout that I could shout back to heaven in my prayers and my praises and say, yes, this is so true. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Forever. What an affirmation that is. I would, I would encourage you strongly. If, again, if you mark your Bible, mark those two verses. If not, you can just remember them, what they were. Go to those verses. You could learn, you can memorize them easily. It's only a couple sentences. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? There's nothing on this earth that I really desire beside you. It won't be there soon anyway, and you will be. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. A theologian named David Wells wrote a concluding paragraph I want to quote to you here. David Wells is an excellent man of God, and here's what he had to say that relates to this. What is at stake, he said, for, the, for us in the shifting sands of our culture as we watch human leaders come and go is whether or not we can see the greatness of God as our supreme ruler, whether our desire for his grandeur will enter into the very fiber of our being. He said, the Psalms often speak of longing for God, fainting for God, being enraptured with God, or having a thirst for God. How out of place those expressions sound in 21st century America and in churches today. He said, the modern, cheap, diminished God that is peddled lacks the power to draw forth from worshipers 
such intense longings as this. We, the church, David Wells said, have reduced Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, to being like a corner store dispensary for our health, our wealth, and our bodily comforts. And Dr. Wells concluded saying this, Can we yet hope that the church will ever rediscover and delight in the limitless grandeur of God himself? Can we be captivated by his beauty and thirsty for his living word? I ask you, carry into the year 2021. I can't tell you if it'll be a better year than 2020 or a worse one. But whatever it is, I say this with Asaph, my flesh and my heart will certainly fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Amen. Father, here we are, poised at the beginning of a new calendar year. Here we are, wondering what we can believe in, who we can believe, who we can trust, what will disappoint us, what will help us. And we've got the answer right here in your word. Help us, O God, to trust in you and nothing else. As long as you give us strength to praise your great name, we ask in Jesus Christ. Amen.